Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I spoke with Ben Gatling, author of Expressions of Sufi Culture in Tajikistan, recently published with the University of Wisconsin Press. Through examining rituals, narratives, everyday experiences, and material practices, this tremendous ethnography draws us into the Sufi experience in Tajikistan as believers use narratives of the past to make sense of and shape their experience in a politically tenuous present. It is a process that is ongoing as some saints, or peers as they are called, become fashionable, while others may become less important. In our conversation, we talked about a number of topics ranging from the nature of fieldwork as a non-believer in a politically marginalized community of belief, the book's interventions in scholarly debates over the use of the word post in scholarship about society in the former Soviet Union, and the narratives and attitudes of the Sufi communities with which he worked. It was a riveting conversation that only begins to scratch the surface of this fascinating book. I really enjoyed talking with Ben, and I hope you'll enjoy listening in. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ben Gatling. Ben is an assistant professor of folklore at George Mason University and an expert on the expressive cultures of Central Asia and the Middle East. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, Tim. Really excited to have you here as well. Um, well, let's get into it. So today we're talking about your new book, Expressions of Sufi Culture in Tajikistan, which has just recently been published with the University of Wisconsin Press. And I guess to start off, before we get to the book itself, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how you got to this topic. What's your folklore origin story? Yeah, great, Tim. I, I love that question. Um, so I, when I graduated from college, uh, I went to work for an aid organization in Afghanistan. I had been a Russian major in college, and I had spent a summer interning with an aid organization in the Caucasus that primarily worked with Chechen refugees. Um, so then when I, I graduated college in 2003, I, uh, I got a job in Afghanistan, and I, I really fell in love with the place. I fell in love with the people, the culture, the language, the food. Um, I found myself uh, traveling often and frequently around the country. Uh, in, in 2003, uh, Afghanistan was a relatively safe place um, to move around. Uh, and I found myself in, in, in gatherings of village men where they told stories, where they recited poetry. Uh, you know, kind of at the, the same point in time, uh, I often read a lot. Uh, but in 2003, right before we could download books on e-readers, uh, the English language books in Kabul were not that widely available. Uh, but there was one bookstore um, in Kabul that sold pirated copies of English language books about Afghanistan. Uh, and I bought a book entitled Rhetorics and Politics of Traditional Afghan Storytelling by Margaret Mills. And as I read the book, I, I found the book extraordinarily helpful for thinking through all the sorts of gatherings that I had been at in the years before, uh, and was really amazed at the ways uh, that, that, that Margaret Mills was able to analyze um, what was happening in these storytelling events. So I, I ended up going to grad school uh, to study with, with, with Margaret Mills at Ohio State, and it, and it wasn't until I got to Ohio State that I realized she was a folklorist, one. Uh, and I discovered what folklore as a discipline was. Uh, and, you know, as you well know, you kind of get sucked into the vortex of, 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 of graduate school. And lo and behold, uh, now I teach folklore uh, at George Mason. I guess the, the other current um, is that in Afghanistan, uh, I kind of stumbled into some Sufi gatherings. Uh, one of my Afghan coworkers uh, was an initiate uh, and introduced me to his peer, and I frequently went to their Friday ritual gatherings when I was in Afghanistan. 
so when I went to grad school, I kind of had that in mind that I that I was really interested in uh, in studying that. Uh, but when it came time to do my dissertation field work, uh, the security situation in Afghanistan was such that I could not go back um, and do the type of uh, you know on the ground ethnographic field work um, that was required. Uh, so I ended up going to Tajikistan. Uh, Tajikistan, um, you know, borders Afghanistan to the north. Uh, they speak the same language that is Persian, uh, Dari Persian in Afghanistan uh, and Tajik Persian uh, in Tajikistan are, are very close, mutually intelligible and written in a different script, but the, but the same language. Um, and they share a cultural environment, um, the kind of larger Persian and cultural milieu, uh, the same kind of place. So that's how I ended up in, in Tajikistan. Um, brilliant. And, um, uh... So you spent a, a decent amount of time in Tajikistan studying with these Sufi communities. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your methodologies for doing that, because I gather that you were working in a fairly politically sensitive context. Um, how did you navigate these communities of shared belief as a non-believer yourself in a politically sensitive context? Yeah, I, I should probably preface my answer um, for those unfamiliar with Soviet Central Asia, um, in saying that in Tajikistan, Islam is a matter of state, right? And any deviation from state-endorsed norms uh, is marked as radicalism. Um, after the end of Tajikistan Civil War in 1997, uh, Tajikistan's president um, for life uh, has been kind of slowly consolidating power, um, and Islam is, is completely securitized. Uh, you know, as the when the book came out uh, in July, and now people have started to read the book, um, I've been surprised um, to see the amount of feedback that I've received about my fieldwork or the fieldwork aspect of the book. Uh, when I when I set out to write the book, I, I didn't write it um, thinking that intentionally of it uh, as a kind of meditation on the fieldwork process. Uh, but most of the, the feedback that I've received so far has been about the type of fieldwork that I that I did. Uh, I do the best I can in the book um, to present not just how the people that I'm working with are reacting to me, but also my reactions to them. Um, I kind of chart the ways that my interlocutors, you know, interact with me in really open ways and interact with me in really suspicious ways and interact with me some ways in, in exasperated ways, right? <laughs> um, and similarly, I, I chart how I do the same, uh, the same with them. Um, you know, and I was really influenced in, in how I wrote those things uh, by the work of, of Kristen Gotzi uh, and also Kieran Narayan, um, specifically her book, Alive in the Writing. Um, and one of the things that, that Narayan talks about extensively is not just writing the people that you're working with as characters, right, in the terms of creative nonfiction in, in your ethnographic work, um, but also including yourself as a character. Uh, so I think a, a lot of the things that people have responded to and how, I, how I've written the ethnography is it about how I've characterized, um, characterized myself. But I think the, the other kind of component of that uh, is that it also – um, suggests um, some ways that maybe uh, we as ethnographers um, can work with communities that are both living under that kind of authoritarian pressure, uh, but then are also working within an esoteric paradigm. Uh, you know, Sufism or the Sufi path, right, exists on a couple of different planes, the, both the apparent uh, and the hidden. Uh, and as an ethnographer, someone who's, who's not a Muslim, who, who's, who's, who's not a Sufi, um, I only have access to the apparent, right? I, I only have uh, access um, to the non-secret, right? The exoteric version uh, of what people are saying. And I, I was frequently um, kind of chided by my interlocutors um, about how ethnographic methodology butts up against the norms of Sufi comportment. Uh, you know, for Sufis, uh, there are detailed and uh, prescribed ways to interact with one's mystical superiors. Um, things like interviews don't work, 
right? You can't ask peers questions directly. Um, that knowledge has to work on a detailed chain uh, of transmission. Um, that kind of the way this that we conduct ethnography um, oftentimes is very different from the ways uh, that Sufis construct their transcendent truth, right? So I'm kind of charting back and forth between those two things. Um, I was recently reminded by by Tom Mould of the work of Barry Tolkien and his, his Yellow Man stories. And I think that's that's particularly relevant in that, that Barry Tolkien just passed away um, a few days ago. Um, and the Yellow Man stories uh, that Barry Tolkien writes about, he talks about how there are these four different layers of meaning. Um, and only two of those layers are appropriate for study um, by someone like Barry Tolkien. And the other two, you know, are completely inaccessible. Um, and, and I think that's the same kind of move with what I'm looking at with Sufis, right? That a lot of what I was able to interact with um, were things uh, that just existed at the apparent level. And I make no claim that I, I'm, I'm writing a book about the hidden, about the esoteric. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm confident in the fact that what I did write about the apparent level um, resonates with how Sufis construct their worlds simply because a lot of the questions that I ask in the book um, that I pose in the book and that I pose in my ethnography um, are questions to which I, I don't need recourse to the hidden domain, right? And that that, that Sufis um, didn't use the hidden domain um, to answer the sorts of questions that I try to answer in the book. Um, that was a kind of long, circuitous answer, but I, I hope that captures some of both the, the challenges of working in that context and, two, the challenges of working um, with communities that, that operate with this you know, esoteric, exoteric uh, paradigm. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I think that it sort of leads us very nicely into the book itself, because one of the things that I notice is that it seems you are asking specific questions of the information that is available to you. In the introduction, for example, you see that you say that your book intervenes into debates about the ways in which the term post and specifically post Soviet needs more attention for how it structures our knowledge about peoples, cultures, and histories. And particularly the way that these peoples and cultures and histories and the narratives that people use uh, and tell can help us better understand these processes. Can you talk a little bit about? Uh, how your book contributes to your critique of the post uh, and sort of building off of what you just said about how you were studying what was available to you. Yeah, great, Tim. I mean, this is, this is one of these discussions that, that's been particularly robust in recent years. Uh, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, much of the way that uh, social scientists, uh, people working in the humanities, uh, talked about Central Asia um, was in terms of it being post-Soviet, right, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, in recent years, um, many scholars have begun to make this critique that, that post-Soviet no longer makes sense as an analytical frame, right? It, it doesn't actually help us do anything out in the world. Um, you know, on one hand, it, it's it's this type of critique makes a lot of sense just for the fact that most, the vast majority actually of the population of Tajikistan has, has no memory of the Soviet period, no direct memory of the Soviet period. Tajikistan has a, has a fairly young population. Uh, there's an anthropologist who, who teaches at Sussex, uh, Diana uh, Ibanez Tirado. Uh, she wrote a really beautiful article that says, how can we be Soviet if, or how can we be post-Soviet if we were never Soviet? And I think that that directly gets at that type of that type of of question. Um, I mean, the other kind of layer of it, and this is one uh, put forward by folks like Alex Yerchak at at, at Berkeley, um, is the way that the post-Soviet or, or, or framing something as post um, is an othering move, right? That 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 posts are fundamentally a kind of regime of alterity. Um, the idea being that when we frame the present in Tajikistan as post-Soviet, we're fundamentally shifting it as different, as other than the rest of global modernity, right? And I think when, when our object of analysis is Islam, the problem becomes even more pronounced. Uh, 
you know, in Laura Stoller, um, those who are kind of coming from thinking about post-colonialism, um, talk about the shift of post from chronology to epistemology, right? Rather than marking, you know, uh, changes in time, but changing in modes of knowledge production. And I, I'm sympathetic to that kind of view, except for the fact that when I look at Sufis on the ground in Tajikistan, uh, Soviet, post-Soviet, pre-Soviet shift and are contingent and are recursive and aren't mutually uh, exclusive. And, you know, as you noted when you, when you framed this question uh, a few minutes ago, is that my collaborators, the, the people that I interact with, my interlocutors uh, in Tajikistan, uh, didn't think in terms of post-Soviet, right? Uh, that wasn't the analytical framework that they used. Um, and for that reason, right, it, it, it may not make so much sense for us to continue using it. Um, yeah, I, hopefully that suggests, right? I, I, think, I think there's both the, the it's a long time ago move. Uh, people don't actually remember the Soviet period in that sense. Um, and right, that, that when we're thinking about time, which is what my, one of the, the kind of themes of my book, pre-Soviet, Soviet, and post-Soviet, um, at least in terms of the lives of the Sufis that I document, um, kind of exist at the same time. Uh, and that's something that hopefully we'll talk about as we move through the rest of the book. Yeah, Absolutely. That's one of the things that really stood out to me about the book in general, was that there's this question about these posts and a critique of them, while at the same time, uh, these many different alternative temporalities and asynchronies, as you've called them, are interweaving through people's narratives in ways that do really interesting social work, if you will. So in chapter one, you're looking specifically at how Sufis in Tajikistan used the past to discuss the present. This is one of those elements of historical narratives, and... I was wondering if you could give some examples about how your consultants did this and discuss what the significance of this narrative work was. Yeah, great. Maybe if I can take kind of one step back and frame a little bit of, of, of what the questions I am asking um, of Asubi said. I don't know that I, that I said it all that explicitly if, a few minutes ago. Uh, but basically what my book tries to do or what I try to do in my book uh, is I'm trying to think about how Sufis uh, living in 21st century Central Asia uh, make sense of their lives, right? Um, in particular, I, I'm really interested in, in how both they come to terms with the implications of the securitization of Islam, right? Of the authoritarian politics that I've already gestured at. And as they come to, to sense of the kind of uh, economic um, struggles in which they're still living through. Um, again, for, for those listeners that may not be familiar with Tajikistan, uh, Tajikistan is um, one of the poorest of the ex-Soviet republics. Uh, it's a small mountainous country in Central Asia, population of about 9 million people, almost 9 million people. Uh, but what's significant about that is uh, there are at least a million Tajiks that work abroad as labor migrants, uh, primarily in Russia. Um, in 2010, when I was I was doing my fieldwork, Tajikistan was among the most remittance-dependent economies in the world. Uh, Tajikistan, at the same moment, right, is still kind of rebuilding a political coalition, you know, after the end of a very bloody civil war that ended in, in 1997. You know, as many as 100,000 Tajiks lost their lives. Uh, so in the book, I, I'm trying to, 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 to think through how Sufis constructed what a 21st century Sufi life in Central Asia should rightly entail. That's a question that I, I, I ask re repeatedly, right? How did they, they live a Sufi life in the midst of these economic struggles and in the midst of authoritarian politics? Um, and of course, being a folklorist, um, I answer these questions by, by thinking about expressive culture. Right, I'm talking about memories, stories, artifacts, rituals, embodied behaviors. Right, and I'm thinking about how these forms express time, memory, history, tradition. Right, how these forms like at once connect Sufis to different times in the past and set out a vision of the future that that's really different from the one uh, that the state puts forward. And, and Tim, as you've as you've already kind of gestured at, um, I try to make a case for thinking about tradition non-linearly. Right, the, the asynchronies, multiple, te multiple temporalities that you just referenced. Um, I'm thinking about how these conflicting pasts and multiple pasts linger in the present at the same time, how Sufis return to them. Um, the other component of that that's really important to note is I, I also spend a fair bit of time thinking about how 
these multiple temporalities, right? Sufi tradition, right? Transcends Tajikistan's authoritarian politics, right? I'm trying to make an argument for how tradition becomes a kind of media for social action, right? Thinking about how Sufi expressive culture enables forms of life beyond the interference of state security services. Uh, Tim, as, as you well know, you know, folklore studies, anthropology, uh, we have long histories of thinking about the folklore, the expressive culture of marginalized groups as resistance, right? But that's not necessarily what's going on here. Um, I mean, for one, the, the Sufis that I knew would hate that idea. Uh, but, but more importantly, I think I, I'm trying to think about how time and tradition create alternative possibilities for action that are beyond that kind of binary of support and resistance. So as you note, I kind of begin the book, um, the first chapter, thinking about um, how Sufis talk about Sufi history um, and how Sufis kind of chart uh, what it means to be Sufi in Tajikistan. And then finally, how all of that is influenced by the current political the current political environment. I mean, in some ways, the, the first chapter is 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 a kind of a kind of standard background chapter from an ethnography, right? Where you provide history, a little bit of cultural context, but but I, I do it differently in the sense that I, I I provide that history through the eyes of the Sufis that I was talking with. I think I, I think I've basically, yeah, I I don't know if that answers your question exactly with the with 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 what I'm doing in chapter one, um, but but that's the that's the kind of three part move that I'm trying to make there. Okay. That, that works. Okay. <laughs> All right. And so moving on from this discussion of how Sufis use narrative to make sense of their own histories and their place in this complex socio-political present, chapter two delves into questions of nostalgia and how it, quote, strategically bridged the paradoxes of their lives, unquote. Now, I was I was most interested in your recognition of the problems of social scientific concepts like invented tradition and imagined communities that sort of tie into this discussion of nostalgia and its deployment of different entanglements. Mm. Hopefully, I'm summarizing these complex ideas in something resembling a cogent fashion, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this and about how Sufi nostalgia can help us better understand their ideas of the present. Yeah, so after I kind of like set the stage in chapter one for uh, kind of giving a big picture overview of the histories of Sufism that, that, that Sufis in Tajikistan are drawing upon, and I kind of chart out who are these Sufis, um, then kind of the rest of the book, I move from a kind of big picture, uh, thinking in general about memory and narrative, all the way to the end of the book to kind of the micro worlds of the, of the Sufi lodge. Um, so in the, in the second and third chapters, I, I'm thinking all about how Sufis talk about the past as you noted. Um, and specifically, like you say in chapter two, I, I'm thinking about nostalgia. Um, and I'm thinking about the strategic uses of, uh, of nostalgia. Um, you know, in terms of, 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 of Anderson and Hobsbawm um, and those, you know, I, I, I'm indebted to Amy Schumann, actually, who, who, who pointed out um, a number of ways that, that those type of perspectives can create problems in doing these types of, of ethnographies. I mean, one, if we, if we think about imagined communities, right, or invented tradition, right, I mean, the, the fundamental idea here, right, is that the tradition that Sufis are creating, right, or the, their imagination of what their community and nation are, are fundamentally false. I mean, I could put it in scare quotes, false, right? They're not real. They're created, right? They're artifice, Right, they're they're imagined in terms of how we're narrating these type of stories. Right, they only exist in story; they have no other you know reality to them. Um, and I think you know fundamentally, right away, um, the point that we as careful ethnographers ought to make um, is that a, a Hobsbawm like take or an Anderson like take would be completely reprehensible um, to the individuals that we work with. Right, the idea that their histories are constructed would be immediately met with. With, with derision and scorn, right? If they heard that, um, that, 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 that that's how someone like, you know, Anderson or Hobbes, someone interpret what they do. Um, and what I, what I kind of chart or what I kind of draw on, um, thinking about entanglements as you reference, and this is from the work of Karen Barad, which is, which is really fascinating work. Um, thinking about multiple temporalities, thinking about layering, thinking about how people inhabit different times at the same time, um, in some ways solve some of those issues that Anderson 
and Hobsbawm uh, and, and, and others present, right, in thinking about the nature of constructed tradition. Um, I begin the, this chapter, this, this chapter two, uh, with a story. Um, and maybe I, if I've got a, I've got a few minutes here, I, I, I'll share the story because I, I think it, I think it gets at what I'm trying to do. Uh, there's a story that, that, that Sufis and Tajikistan often told me about Sultan Mahmud. Uh, for those historians, uh, listening, uh, Sultan Mahmud was the leader of the Ghaznavid, uh, the Ghaznavid empire, um, like the end of the 10th century. And Sultan Mahmud is this legendary figure, uh, in Persian literature and, and folklore. And there's a story that he sent his slave Ayaz, his lover and slave Ayaz, um, out to give a gold coin to all the Sufis in the realm. Um, and after some time, Ayaz returns with, with, with all of the coins still in tow. Uh, and, and, and Mahmud is a, is a little outraged and says, what happened? You know, why didn't you give away all this money? Uh, and, and Ayaz tells him that um, all the people that wanted the money weren't real Sufis. And all the real Sufis either were hidden or they didn't want the money. Um, but that's precisely the issue that Sufis are thinking about in the present, right? That there aren't Sufis to be found. Uh, they're hidden, right? Um, but at some indeterminate point in the past, uh, Sufism flourished. You know, they're fundamentally living this paradox where they imagine that in the present, we have this, these discourses of Islamic revival kind of circulating all over the place, right? That after the end of state atheism, Right, that people can openly practice Islam again. Right, we have mosques being constructed. Right, we have you know religious figures on television. Right, we have religious literature available to be purchased. Right, in the bazaar, etc. So, so they they're they're kind of existing in this world in which there's been this Islamic revival, uh, but at the same time they look around and, and they see their numbers as as less than they were before. Now, on one hand, this is understandable because if you know working age men are all in Russia. Right, not at home. Uh, they fundamentally can't be present for ritual. I mean, that's kind of one component of it. Uh, but there's this idea that in the not so distant past, Sufism flourished, right? And if we point back to the pre-Soviet past, um, that peers were all over the place, right? That that is Sufi, you know, masters were were all over the place. Um, so in a sense, what what I what I try to make an argument for um, is about how nostalgia. Um, provides a kind of way to bridge all of those paradoxes, right? The insight that nostalgia provides agency is not a new one. Uh, I mean, in folklore studies, the most recent is someone like Ray Cashman uh, to work on critical critical nostalgia. Um, but what I'm trying to chart, or what, I, what I'm trying to say here is that how nostalgia provides a kind of rhetorical glue, if you will, between all of these different moments in time. Right, the nostalgia allows Sufis that I was working with to kind of reassemble all of these broken pasts and presents, right, into a whole. Um, I mean, as we well know, I mean, as social scientists, as we well know, you know, nostalgia in talking about the past, right, we're making a pragmatic claim on the present, right? That that that's fundamentally what discourse about the past does. Um, and interestingly, in 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 my work, uh, the people that were were most conversant in nostalgic talk were precisely those people um, in need of making a claim on the past, right? In need of agency. That is those most disempowered from the current political environment, right? Were the ones most likely to kind of trade in nostalgia. Um, so as I see it, like as I'm making this move of thinking about how Sufis talk about the past and how they use Sufi tradition to move through these different moments in time, I see nostalgia as kind of like the linchpin, if you will. Right between moving through all of these moments in time, um, and then back to you know where we began with, with your question with Hopswam and and, um, and and Anderson, uh, the idea that if if we think about these things in terms of multiple temporalities, right, it kind of solves some of the the kind of problems presented when we think about the constructed nature of tradition. Great, great, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I loved that story about the Sultan. And I loved this story in chapter three as well, entitled uh, this chapter entitled Narrating the Past. The chapter begins with this amazing narrative about a cat martyring itself to protect the pious, which just, I, I had to read it about three different, uh, three different times just for enjoyment. Um, over the course of the chapter, you proceed to examine how tools of genre, intertextuality, and historical narrative help understand and lend authenticity to contemporary devotion in relation to the past. 
I was just wondering if you could uh, build on this and explain a little bit more about this. Yeah, great. Well, maybe I should begin with the story um, because, yeah, no, it really is a fascinating story. Uh, And the story itself comes from a hagiographical text. And honestly, I I can't remember off the top of my head its date, but I'm thinking like the 14th or 15th century. I'd have to go back to the book uh, to be sure. Um, But I was sitting one day with with, with one of my Sufi friends and and we were reading this hagiography together and we read the story. And the story is this, right? That that this peer, this, this Sufi peer, this Sufi master had a cat. Um, and every time that the, the disciples all came to the peer's house uh, for lunch, that the cat would like meow out uh, the number of guests so that the cook, you know, out back tending the rice over the fire, you know, would, would know how many cups of rice to you know, fill the pot with. So he'd have enough food. And one day uh, the cat is there and he kind of walks into the crowd and, and he kind of goes crazy with his meowing. Um, and everybody's a little like astounded because normally, you know, he just meows once for all the guests. So the cook knows how many, how many, how many dishes, how many cups of rice to make. Um, and it turns out that then he like pees in front of this one guy. Uh, and it turns out that that one person was an unbeliever, right? Wasn't a, wasn't a Muslim, wasn't a Sufi. Anyway, the, the cat kind of, I guess, saunters back to the, to the outback where the, where the cook's making the rice. Um, and as the cook kind of looks away, this black snake falls into the pot of rice. And the cat again kind of, you know, meows furiously. Um, and the cook ignores the cat, right? Doesn't do anything about it. Um, and eventually, uh, when the, when the cook kind of turns away again, uh, the cat jumps in the pot, right? To eat the snake, right? To prevent the snake from, you know, defiling the, um, you know, the, the pot of food. And then once the rice is cooked, you know, they, they discover the snake and cat, uh, in the pot. And it turns out, you know, that the cat had saved, uh, everyone, um, everyone from the snake. Uh, so what was it? So it's a really interesting story on its face, but what was even more interesting to me was, was after my, my friend finished telling me that story, he said, well, the, my peer has a cat, uh, and my peers cat, you know, can determine, you know, who's a believer or not. And then he proceeds to tell the story about this time that a mouse fell from the ceiling and what the cat did, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think that the reason that I tell that story here, besides the fact that it's an interesting one, is the fact that it gets exactly at, at what I'm talking about in terms of narrative, about how narratives connect to the present. That exactly what, what Sufis are doing, right, is, that, is they're using stories from narrative tradition. Right? And they're manipulating tools of genre, they're manipulating tools of intertextuality in order to make narrative comparisons between these moments in the sacred past uh, and the present. And the story about the cat, of course, is, is a kind of uh, interesting way to, to, to think about that, right? The idea that here's this, this sacred past, this, this, um, this, this kind of this, this cat uh, who performs this, you know, amazing sacrifice for the pious, um, and then connecting it directly back to the, to the, to the lodge in the present. Um, I spent a lot of my time, I think, in this chapter talking about a different saint. Uh, that is a, a man named Mavlavi Junani. And what's interesting about Mavlavi Junani uh, is he was this 19th century Sufi figure who was completely and utterly unknown to people until about 20 years ago, right? The end of the last millennium, like around 97, 98. Um, and in this short period of time, right, the 10 or 20 years between that point in time, uh, Junani has become one of the most popular Sufi figures from the 19th century. So the question for me, kind of the fundamental question is, is how does this relatively unknown figure become one of the most well-known saints, right? I'm thinking about these, the way that, that, that the present in some ways, right, works to lionize and valorize particular pasts. Um, and the way that that happens that I chart in this chapter is through different kind of narrative means, right? Through narrating stories about Junani from the 19th century um, and, 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 equi- and, and using the, gen- the audience's generic expectations about what saints' tales include, right? To connect Junani to that sacred moment, also including these stories from the Soviet period, right? Where Junani kind of kind of gets valorized in another way um, and make these different connections between and across time, right? And fundamentally, I think that, you know, the argument that I'm trying to make in chapter three is about how historical narratives um, kind of posit different time types of continuity, right? If we think of nostalgia before as this kind of rhetorical glue between these moments in time, right? Uh, 
narrative is what kind of evens out the, 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 the whatever messiness remains, right? That narrative posits certain types of continuity between different moments in time. Um, and the way that Sufis are doing that, right, is through um, the tools that genre and intertextuality provide. You know, one thing I, I didn't say with chapter two or chapter one that I, that I could say with chapter three is that in all of these chapters too, I kind of gesture at how the governing elite are making similar types of moves. So in chapter three, I, I talk about historical narratives that the president of Tajikistan, you know, notes um, about Sufi figures from the past, right? Um, and the president of Tajikistan has to, and other members of the governing elite have their own na- notions, rather, of what that cultural continuity ought to look like um, and what moments in time get mapped onto the present. Um, but they're doing very similar kind of discursive work. Um, and I note that as well. The sudden emergence of these saints like Janouni is really fascinating, really fascinating to me. And I guess that's something that continues, uh, that particular question continues in chapter four, entitled Material Sainthood. And you move from oral narrative to material practices in the production and circulation of certain texts. And in this chapter, you talk more about Junini, as I recall. I wonder, how did you recognize the role that these texts play, even as you are focusing on oral narratives? So how did you realize the, the, the role that these texts play in helping Tajik Sufi communities do this sort of temporal work? Right. I mean, so so one way that I can answer that question is maybe going all the way back to the fieldwork question. Uh, because of the way that uh, Tajikistan's authoritarian politics were structured, particularly at the beginning of my fieldwork, um, I wasn't always able to do the type of participant observation um, in Sufi gatherings that I might have liked. Uh, but very early on to me, there were many Sufis that were willing to read books with me. Right, they were really they were willing to study with me, right, or they were willing to to teach me, right, what was in the texts that they valued. Uh, so I spent a lot of time reading books with people um, and going to bookshops with people and interacting with with booksellers um, and things like that. Um, and that's kind of you know how I, I, I guess in terms of the, the recognition move, right. Um, and it, I think what it did was it, it proved very fortuitous in the sense that I could see how. Sufis used books and textual practices in order to answer the types of questions that I posed at at, at the outset. Um, in terms of the connection to Junani, you know, I kind of begin this chapter with uh, stumbling on Junani as a book to begin with, right? And then I kind of found that these books were everywhere and everybody was using these books. And then as I began to dig deeper into the history of Junani, I, I realized how little we knew about who he was and his tradition. Uh, and that kind of kind of piqued my interest about how books were constituent of the same type of social practices that I identified in, in previous chapters. Um, and really, I think what I'm after in, in chapter four um, is I'm thinking in the same thing about bridging moments in time um, and moving through disparate moments in time. But rather than, than bridging them through narrative, um, I'm thinking about how they get bridged materially, right? Um, or how text, books, artifacts perform the same type of mediatory social action that I already referenced in, in previous, you know, in previous chapters. Um, that books in some ways materially mediate the moments in time, just like the stories did before. Uh, there's a moment in this chapter where I'm at a shrine uh, not far from the, the Taji capital, Dushanbe. Um, and there's the imam there offering prayers on Shrine Day, you know, to all the pilgrims that are coming. And on the, the this platform that he's sitting on are all these books. Uh, but what's really curious about these books is how different the books really are. They all reference the saint, right, at, the, at this very active shrine where there are hundreds of people here on Shrine Day. Um, one of them uh, is a, a book written by the saint himself, uh, but then there are, you know, like touristic, like Soviet era, like tourist brochures, right? Um, or kind of like popular histories, right? Uh, or, you know, ritual texts that reference the saint. And they're all kind of up there on the platform together in this really kind of curious cultural bricolage. And, and the question then is, 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 is what do they do? Why does that, you know, make sense? Um, how does that, <laughs> 
how does that make sense in the terms of, of what books are doing? And I think about books in terms of kind of materializing sainthood, right? Kind of materializing authority, that they're kind of this memory that I'm talking about in tangible form. Um, I think about the ways that, that, that books are external, right? Or have a kind of externality, uh, externality about them. Um, and this is an insight that folklorists and anthropologists have, 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 have used repeatedly, right? The idea about objects having an existence, um, having a memory, right? Um, that allows them to kind of stand outside past and present, right? That they, they, they carry their authority because they, they seem independent of the actors that both wrote them and use them in the present, right? That they kind of carry an authority independent from those people. And because of that, like it allows them to help in this mediating all of these disparate moments in time. Um, and then in terms of the authority stuff, um, I'm thinking about them very much as these material tokens, right? I'm thinking about um, traces and like the, the, the purse, the sense of, of Charles Purse, right? That they're kind of evidence, right, of, of saintly power. Um, and again, if I, I'm kind of moving back and forth between both the tradition and time and then how that intersects with Tajikistan's authoritarian politics, in this chapter, I also think about the ways that the, that the state uses books and uses censorship, right? Or rather that the state religious bureaucracy, members of the state religious bureaucracy uh, use censorship um, and use books, again, to chart their own notions of time. Brilliant. Yeah, it came out really nicely across the chapter. And I loved how it ties into some of these really important questions and interventions about material vernaculars. And this chapter seems a strong addition to that body of scholarship. Moving on to chapter five, you sort of move on to questions of ritual. And these orally composed and these orally composed poems that are sung in ritual, right? And I'm wondering if you could talk about a little bit about how Sufis draw on communicative resources from the larger Central Asian Muslim tradition to alleviate some of these paradoxes of the present that you've been telling us about. You know, so when I initially went to Tajikistan, uh, the stuff that appears in chapter five is what I imagined my work would be. Um, you know, being in Afghanistan, spending a lot of time with Sufis doing ritual, you know, this is what had interest me, interested me the most about what Sufis did, right? The idea of, uh, of using poetry, right, um, in a ritual context was what I was hoping to explore uh, in Tajikistan. But because of the political situation, um, at least toward the beginning of my fieldwork, I, I was unable to attend these type, of, these type of events. Now, kind of the political situation eventually modulated and I was able to do some of these things and I was able to conduct um, a significant amount of fieldwork uh, in ritual. Um, but because I spent so much time doing other things, uh, I realized that the other things um, were perhaps more important to answering the types of questions right, that Sufis were asking about their present than ritual alone. At the same time, it's important to note that zikr, uh, the kind of ritual that I that I talk about in chapter five, um, is fundamentally all about the past. Uh, I mean, even its name, zikr, means remembrance, right? Remembrance of, of God in this sense. But what's happening is we have Sufis who are quoting poetry ritually in ritual. And what's interesting about this is, is, is these are direct quotes from the past. Right? These are the voices of past authoritative peers right, speaking into the present. Uh, um, Sufis in the midst of these ritual contexts are remembering times of past authentic devotion. Right, If we keep the idea of nostalgia and anachronism and multiple temporalities and asynchronies and all these things in mind, right, that, that, that what's happening in ritual is, is, is Sufis are remembering an authentic past and bringing that into the ritual context. Um, you know, it's also probably important to note that, that poetry is perhaps the most important expressive form uh, in the Persianate cultural universe. Uh, there's an anthropologist who's done a lot of work uh, in Shiraz in Iran, Setrag Manukian. Um, and he talks about poetry being the form in which Iranians experience themselves as subjects with the power to act in the world, right? In a sense, what he's getting at here is that poetry is the very grounds through which Iranian subjectivity is created, right? So 
poetry carries an awful lot of cultural freight. Uh, but in ritual, what's happening is that the poetry singers are oftentimes, in effect, creating new poems, right? Uh, composing in performance, if you will, if we want to think back to Albert Lord and others, right? That, that they're making those type of moves, um, but they can't be authored in the present. They have to be attributed to a past. Now, Persian uh, has a set of linguistic resources that allows this to happen quite easily because uh, this particular genre of poetry um, has the poet's signature uh, in the final line. Um, so there's a kind of convenient way for poets to, in the present, to traditionalize their verse, right? To, um, to if we use the term of, of, of Susan Stewart, right, to distress their poetry, right? To, to make these relatively new forms seem quite old. Uh, but what, again, that does is it allows the poetry singer um, to help make those temporal types of connections, right, that I've been gesturing at throughout the book to this point, right? That ritual too, right, um, works in a way to connect different moments in time, right? Right. I... I see a lot of at least surface level parallels with Tibetan groups with which I work. And I'm really, really interested to try and dig into, into that a little bit more. But time being what it is, maybe we should move on to chapter six, which is entitled Learning to be Sufi. And it, and it, looks, it seems to look more toward the everyday experience of being Sufi and the embodiment of faith and memory through adhering to rules and participating in group teaching events. Um, in some ways, when I when I read it, I felt like it should be a chapter at the beginning of the book, but also strangely only made sense placed at the end, which I guess makes sense for a book that talks about multiple temporalities interplaying throughout uh, throughout a community. I guess can you introduce some of these practices and discuss how Sufis with whom you work embody memory through these practices? Yeah, I mean, so the reason that it, you know it comes at the end, um, you know, is that it. As I was structuring the book and thinking about all of these different expressive forms, you know, I kind of moved from the most exoteric to the most esoteric, if you want to frame it that way. Or I moved from the most outsider um, kind of friendly way, thinking about memory, all the way to the very intricate rules, um, behaviors, attitudes that people embody in the bounds of the Sufi Lodge. So I see it as a kind of like funnel in some ways to the end, right? That these are the kind of the, the, the most intricate um, practices that, that, that Sufis perform. And chapter six is all about how time gets embodied as I, as I frame it. And I think about lots of different embodied uh, behaviors. Um, I begin with a, with an ethnographic vignette uh, that was perhaps the, the weirdest moment from my, my fieldwork and the most uncomfortable moment from my fieldwork. And it's the time when I, I, I go on this, this, this trip with these Sufis to build this mosque off on the side of a mountain. Um, and I have to go through all of these like complex um, ways to make sure that I'm ritually clean. Uh, I have to, I have to do all of these things. I have to wear certain things, even though, you know, I'm not a Muslim, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Sufi. Um, I had to go through all of these hoops in order to get to this point, all to labor on the side of a mountain all day to pull off these boulders off the side of the mountain that they use to make a foundation for the mosque. Um, at the whole time that we're up there, we're fasting, you know, as we're like working in this hot summer sun, pulling, um, pulling boulders off the side of the mountain, we're fasting. Um, there's detailed prayer procedures that we're all doing. Um, and then when I, I get back to Dushanbe later, I, I'm telling some other Sufis and some other friends and acquaintances about my day, and they're all just appalled. Just, just aghast at what it is that I did that day. Um, and I, I keep hearing this line, like, the time for that is all past. Like, the time for that is all past. It's all over, right? That's not what people do now. That's what, Maybe that's what people used to do, but that's not what people do now. That's not what good Sufis, you know, do now. Um, and what I began to think about and what that began to think, what, what, what that led me to think about was how all of these practices that I engaged on the mountainside, right, were a kind of embodied nostalgia. Right, they're kind of an a kind of anachronism, right? A time out of place sense, right? The past in the present, right? Um, 
And then as the chapter kind of unfolds, I, I think about other sorts of embodied behaviors, which are just as anachronistic, if we want to, if we want to put it in that frame, right? That the different comportment one uh, performs in front of a peer, right? Or the particular ways that one sits and receives lessons from a peer and how knowledge flows, right, for a peer um, is the same way. Um, you know, in some of this, I, I, I draw on, on, you know, anthropologists like Salva Mahmood or Charles Hershkin thinking about this as a kind of like ethical cultivation, right? Creating this kind of ideal self, creating a kind of mythical uh, disposition. Um, but the ways that this ideal self is created is all through um, manipulating time, right? Or all exists within these time discourses, right? Of, um, of time out of joint, right? Of anachronism, if we want to frame it, if we want to frame it that way. Um, so I see a lot of these embodied behaviors that I'm talking about um, is just as nostalgic, right? As the other sorts of expressive, um, expressive behaviors that, that I've already talked about uh, to this point in the book. Nice. Well, I think we've taken up a lot of your time today. It's been really great talking to you. Uh, and before I let you go, I was wondering if you could answer one more question, and that's, what are you working on now? Great. Um, yes, yeah, so I've been working for the past year or two uh, with refugees from Afghanistan that now live in the Northern Virginia area. Uh, Northern Virginia is, is one of the places, is one of the largest populations of, of Afghans in, in the United States um, after the Bay Area in California. By some estimates, if you take Northern Virginia, Washington, and, 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 Mar- and kind of suburban Maryland, kind of the, the, the the greater um, metro area, there may be as many as 50,000 Afghans that, that, that live in this area. And specifically, I've been working um, with folks that have received uh, the special immigrant visa. That's the CIV visa. These are folks uh, that were primarily interpreters or worked for um, the embassy um, or worked um, for uh, our other military partners in Afghanistan and have since moved to the United States um, because um, it's not safe for them to be in Afghanistan in the present. And I've basically been connecting, collecting rather, um, their stories about home, about Afghanistan, about war in Afghanistan, and their movement here about migration. Um, so I, I, I'm working on a project now thinking about um, these kind of narratives of migration um, among Afghan refugee populations that, that live in Northern Virginia. That sounds like an amazing project. Well, Ben, I just wanted to thank you for being on the podcast today to talk about this tremendous book, Expressions of Sufi Culture in Tajikistan, uh, the product of so many years of work. Your passion really comes across throughout the conversation. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim.